Amen. Go ahead and be seated. We're going to be diving into uh, our, our next week in this series called Streams here in just a moment. Uh, but for those of you who do not know Bill, this is uh, my, my friend Bill Eaton, who has been uh, maybe the, the best phrase for Bill is just a, a godsend in the last year, a little bit more than that. He's probably a little bit upset with me now because I asked him to, to teach with me, and he said yes, and maybe is not happy that I asked. But he is an absolute uh, gift to me personally in so many ways. I, can't, I mean, I could go on for a long time. And he has been an absolute gift to you in many ways, as has his wife, Peggy. And so Peggy and Bill are um, just incredible people as they follow Jesus and love people so well and love his church so well. And so I asked Bill to, uh, to join me this morning to, to share as we look at uh, Luke 19 and the story of Zacchaeus and we dive further into our stream series. And this morning we're going to talk about generosity. But before we dive into that, Bill, will you kind of give everyone your perspective of the series and, and why we're even talking about sure. these streams? Well, first I'm thankful to Jason that he didn't leave this on while I was singing. And, I'm uh, thankful for that every week. Yeah. You know, as I thought about the series of, uh, that we've been preaching through on streams, I thought about uh, Jesus Christ. And in John, he says that all who believe in me, streams of living water will flow out of them. And uh, not through any human effort, but it's all God through Jesus Christ and the power of his spirit that he transforms us, makes us human the way we're truly meant to be. It doesn't mean that it doesn't require some human effort because remember when Landon preached on collaboration a few weeks ago, and the Israelites in captivity were told to, what, to plant gardens and to marry, uh, to pray for the welfare of the city, right? But then if we drop down a few verses later, God says, seek me with your whole heart, with your whole heart, and I promise I will be found by you, that God was always with them, and God was always near to them. So we remember as we, we enter these streams that God uses in our lives that they might not always be gentle flowing, but we know that God uses them for his purpose and fulfillment in our lives, that he's always with us, that he always guards us, that he always guides us, that he directs us to this full transformation. We know as well that these streams lead, lead into the, the city of God, the rivers of life, and rivers of life represent a fulfillment or full restoration, truly made the way we were meant to be. No more sin, no more tears, no more brokenness. I call it beyond beautiful, you know. Uh, so when we think about the streams uh, that we've gone through, repentance and hospitality, collaboration, Sabbath, generosity, and celebration, we think about how God uses those in our lives to be his signposts, to reflect his image. And now Jesus Christ works through us in all of those, that no matter where we go, no matter where he places us, no matter who we meet, the love of Christ flows out of us into the lives of others. And that's what the streams mean to me. Yeah, it's helpful. I think, too, one of the things that I love about these streams as we discuss these practices or lifestyles or, or ways of life that God calls us to dive into and he says he'll meet us there in them is that they not only will bless us, and sometimes that, that blessing's hard, sometimes it comes with challenge, but God uses that to also bless others, to bless the city around us. And so uh, I'm excited this morning to talk about the topic of, of generosity and being generous with ourselves, with our finances, with our ears and our listening, um, and, and what the scriptures say, that it's actually a blessing to us to be generous. And so it's one thing to say that, to say it's better, as, as Jesus says, to give than to receive. It's a whole other thing to actually go, 
Yeah, I believe that. That makes sense to me. My guess is for many of you this morning, you go, that doesn't make sense what Jesus says there. And so we're going to dive into that and talk about it. And the way we're going to break down kind of our discussion this morning is to talk about six different principles of generosity. Uh, primarily, we'll spend our time in Luke chapter 19, uh, verses 1 through 10. So if you have a Bible, feel free to turn there. Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. And, and as we get there, Bill, will you kind of start us off with the first principle this morning? Sure. So the first principle is generosity is really our identity. It's who we are in Jesus Christ, and we remember that God first loved us that we might love him. So that generosity that's in us flows from God. It's God through Christ working in us. And there's a couple of verses that kind of bring us to that, that talk about adoption, how we were adopted into God's family. We're not, we're not individuals, but we've been adopted into a family that, that exists. And uh, so maybe, Landa, you would read Romans first. Yeah, Romans 5, 6 through 11 says this. For while we were still helpless, at the appointed moment, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than, since we have now been declared righteous by his blood, we will be saved through him from wrath. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, and how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have now received this reconciliation through him. And so what we see really is the, what has to be the foundation for generosity, that while we were still sinners, while we were enemies of God, literally working against him, it's at that moment that Christ died for us. It's at that moment that he says, no, I still love you in that midst uh, of your sin and rebellion. And that changes really everything. That changes perspective. It's not about the good we do or the, the bad that we avoid, but rather simply because Jesus says you are enough that he gives up his life on, on the cross for us. Yeah, that's incredible. It and is. I think about that generosity that he would love us while we're still sinning against him. Uh, look at the, uh, Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. When the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of the son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And I thought of this verse, and I thought, from, from my perspective, the extraordinary love a family has by adopting a child. I mean, it's, it's supernatural to me. But how much more of the love of God that he would give his son, Jesus Christ, that he loved us so much that he, that he would adopt us, that you're part of his family. It's kind of hard to understand that we're, we're his sons and daughters, right? We talked about a couple weeks ago as we discussed hospitality, that there is no greater form of hospitality than divine adoption, than God saying, you are now welcomed into my family. And this is permanent hospitality. This isn't something where we invite somebody over for dinner and go, okay, I'm glad, I'm glad we're done with that. That was a little crazy. No, he says, in the midst of our, our continuous sin and issues and struggles, you are here permanently, and nothing is going to change my love for you. That's the eternal and divine hospitality that God offers us. And then his generosity is that he gives up his own life for us. That's the foundation. and has to be for our discussion this morning. And with it, 
Here, here's the first principle. Generosity is part of our identity. You are made to be generous. We read in Genesis 1 and 2 that we are image bearers. We are created in God's image. We are like him, and he is a generous God. He is generous with his self, with his love, with the gifts that he gives. And so actually, if you put it in the reverse, we can think about generosity this way. It is counterintuitive to who we are. It goes against who we were made to be to not be generous, to have a closed fist to not be giving actually works against who you were created to be. And so the, the stingier we are, if you will, with finances, with our skill sets, with our time, it's actually going to be harder in life because you're working against your design. And in the long run, we're going to feel that. You know, that really, that first generosity point is really the gospel, that God so loved us that he gave a son. That's the true gospel, isn't it? Absolutely. We, uh, a few weeks ago, I shared some different prayers from a, a book I've been reading, and I want to share another one of these. Um, that can just be a prayer. We as a church pray throughout this week. It, it says this, may the depth of my generosity never be swayed by the depth of thanks I receive. And, and so we can pray this because that's what, that's what Christ exemplified. He died for those that haven't even returned to him. He died without expecting any thanks. He did it while we were still sinners and and enemies. And and so for us, having been given that love, we then can pray this. And and if you're like me, you probably have to pray first for your heart, because my heart's not there oftentimes. And so what we have to do is go, God, I'm going to confess this to you. And Lord, may the depths of my generosity never be swayed by the depths of thanks I receive. When when Jesus gave his love to us, there was no transaction. We didn't do anything to earn it. And so in the same way as we seek to be generous, we're not looking for a transaction. Our our generosity isn't generous if it's actually just a transaction to get something in return. And so we look to to mirror Jesus in this. And so to kind of frame the rest of our conversation, we're going to move to Luke chapter 19. And and maybe you've heard of the story of Zacchaeus. He's a tax collector. Maybe you haven't. Uh, We're going to kind of break down this story for you and see how God's transforming grace really leads to and requires generosity. We'll go ahead and open up in Luke chapter 19, verse 1. Here's the, the first verse. We read this about Jesus. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And so we got to just kind of pause for a moment to set the stage for this story. What happened right before this is actually really important. Right before Jesus actually enters this city, he was traveling from a different city into Jericho. And he's on this dirty, dusty road. I kind of envisioned something feeling like the, the county fair. It is dirty and it's dusty and you can't breathe and there's people all around you, okay? And there's a crowd because people have heard about this Jesus. And they're wondering, could this Jesus be the one that their father told them about? And his father told him about, and his father told him about. Because like us, they were experiencing brokenness in life, and they longed for a Savior. And so they were anticipating when the Savior, the Messiah, the Christ would come, and there were, there were rumors going around that maybe it's Jesus. And so people are following Jesus. He's traveling on this road. There's a crowd. There's a buzz. And there's an, an energy. And there's a blind man sitting on the side of the road. And he starts to kind of feel a little bit of a vibration and the energy of a crowd coming. He senses something's about to happen. And so he can't see, and he just, he just kind of cries out, hey, what's going on? And people say, Jesus is coming down the road. And as soon as he hears this, the blind man does something incredible. He does the only thing he really can do in this moment. He just cries out loudly. And you have to picture it was loud because there's a crowd and the vibration and the energy. And he cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And you'd think, we could understand that, right? The crowd could understand that. 
Maybe this Jesus can heal him. But what is the crowd's response? It's the opposite. It's funny how we are as humans. They say, shut up. This isn't your time. This isn't about you. Jesus doesn't care about you in this moment. As there's a big crowd. But the, the blind man doesn't care. He cries out again, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. All the louder so that he can raise his voice and Jesus might hear. And eventually Jesus hears and he says, what's going on? And they point him to this blind man. And he comes to the blind man and he says, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man says, I want to receive sight. And Jesus heals. And now this blind man doesn't just need to yell. He can see. And he follows Jesus into Jericho. And so here's what we have to understand. There was already a crowd because there was expectation that this Jesus might be the Savior. But now there's this blind man who was blind, who they yelled at because they didn't think Jesus would care about him. He's got more important things to do. Jesus stops everything he's doing in the midst of this crowd, in the midst of this moment, and says, what do you want? He heals him. And, and now maybe their expectations are verified. Like if there was excitement, if there was energy, it is exponentially amplified. And then they walk into Jericho and we move on to, to verse two. There was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector and he was rich. And so we have to understand here, Zacchaeus, he's gonna be our, our second main character. Jesus is the main character, Zacchaeus is second. Everybody hated Zacchaeus. Because the way that it worked in, in this culture, in this time and day, Zacchaeus was rich because he stole from people. The, the way the Roman Empire would work is they'd set up a contract with the tax collector to go take money from people. And the way that Zacchaeus would actually be paid is kind of the set your own salary kind of thing. All he has to do is say, how much do I want? And I'm going to take that much more than Rome requires. And so the wealthier Zacchaeus gets, it's because he's taken more and more from the people. And the wealthier he gets, the more he's hated. The wealthier he gets, the more he's hated. Tax collectors are, are looked down upon really by everybody. They don't have friends. They're not liked. That is Zacchaeus. Verse 3, he was trying to see who Jesus was. Again, Jesus is famous at this point. He's heard about him. But he was not able to because of the crowd. There's a lot of people around here. You can, you can hear the, the noise and the rumble of the crowd. And he's a short little guy, and so he can't see. He might be jumping up and down trying to see. Here's what he does in the next verse. I love the, the details that Luke gives us. So running ahead, he climbed up a sycamore tree to see Jesus since he was about to pass that way. So you have this short little rich guy that runs ahead and finds a tree, and he climbs up to the top. Because for some reason, he thinks it's important enough to see this Jesus. Now, now, just play this out in your head for a second, okay? What do you think Zacchaeus is expecting? He's wealthy because he's stolen from people. Nobody likes him, and a teacher of love, of the way of God is coming, and he wants to observe him, right? And you have to wonder, maybe, maybe he was processing things in his heart. Maybe he just wanted to have some entertainment on this day and see what all, all the hustle and bustle was about. But my guess is he did not want to be seen by Jesus. My, my guess is he just wanted to see what was going on. And so we continue to read here in verse 5. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up. Okay, it's not just Zacchaeus and Jesus. There's a large crowd, so much so that in order to see, he climbs up the tree. When Jesus comes to the place, he looks up and said to him, again, is this in a loud or a quiet voice? He probably has to yell because there's a lot of people around. Zacchaeus, Hurry and come down because today I must stay at your house. If I'm Zacchaeus at this very moment, I am panicking because you can't run when you're stuck in a tree. 
And so Jesus looks up and he yells at Zacchaeus. And as Jesus looks up, everybody else looks up too. And they're looking up and they see this short little guy that they hate that's rich because he's stolen their money. And Zacchaeus is probably going, there is nowhere to run. There is nowhere to hide. This is not what my plans were for this day. But God had something different planned. And as soon as he actually heard the words of Jesus, he would have realized something different was happening. Zacchaeus, hurry and come down because today I must stay at your house. That is a very big sentence. That doesn't just mean I have nowhere to stay. I don't know where to go. All the hotels are full. What, what this means culturally is that I accept you. To go and stay at somebody's, to go and stay at somebody's house is this, this relational moment where you're saying, I accept you for who you are and I trust you. We have evidence of this in the next couple verses. So Zacchaeus climbs down the tree, which must have been awkward, and welcomed Jesus joyfully. All who saw it began to complain. He's going to lodge with a sinful man. Okay, hold on. They just saw a blind man who they knew. He was always on this street begging and asking for money and different things. They knew the blind man. He now can see. They watched Jesus do it. They witnessed it, and they praised him. We actually read in Luke chapter 18. And then the next thing Jesus does, they complain about publicly. They're not happy that Jesus would accept the man who has stolen from him. Like we do, they're going, Jesus, what in the world are you doing? It? You're, you're really messing it up this time, Jesus, because he's accepting Zacchaeus. All who saw it began to complain. He's gone to lodge with a sinful Man, we continue in verse 8. But Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, Look, I'll give half of my possessions to the poor, Lord, which is a lot. He's wealthy. And, I have, and if I have exhorted anything from anyone, I will pay back four times as much. The, the legal amount for restitution is nowhere near four times. And so we might be thinking, Jesus has called out this man, and so he's going to do whatever he, he, he has to do to get rid of the awkwardness, to pay back for what he's done. But he goes above and beyond that. Luke includes that detail to show us something. In this moment, or on this journey, it could have been later that night that this is all put together and written. Something changes in Zacchaeus' heart and who he is. There's a transformation bigger than a transaction. He's not saying, okay, I've messed up. Let me pay my price. Something already happened before that, and we read it in verse 9. Today, salvation has come to this house, Jesus told him, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. The sequence here is really important, and we're going to talk about that as we now dive into the rest of the principles. You know, the second principle here is that it's grace and salvation restores our hearts to the way that God originally intended them to be. And I think about the short stature of Zacchaeus, but I think about how God changed his heart, and now his heart is probably bigger than he is, right? And we look back through uh, verses 6 through 10 again. Can you go back one? So he quickly came down and welcomed him joyfully into the house, and all who saw it began to complain, he's gone to lodge with a sinful man. Now, I imagine that Zacchaeus heard these complaints. I know they're going in one ear and out the other ear. Then he heard them. Uh, verse 9. Oh, no. Zacchaeus stood there. Uh, so he came quickly down. Also, began, okay, he's gone to lodge with a sinful man, but, in verse 8, Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, Lord, I'll give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I extorted anyone, I'll pay back four times as much. So we see the generosity now of 
Zacchaeus, going back to each individual that he's stolen money from, that he's taken money from, for his own benefit, and now he pays them back. And imagine that, I think about the repentance about here, not only that he pays them back, but they, he's going to have to say to them, really, that what you said about me all along is true, that I was a wicked man, that I stole from you. It's a tremendous witness to what Christ has done in his life. God, through Christ, has done in his life. For now, he becomes generous. And, and again, all he wants to do now is please the Lord. Yeah, you can really see that there's a cost beyond just the financial cost. To now have to go to the people that you've stolen from and say, I'm going to return more than what I stole. Can you imagine what those people thought? They're just complaining to Jesus and to each other that Jesus would accept this man. Okay, they don't like him. That's very clear. And then almost instantly, as this transformation happens because of Jesus, not because of what Zacchaeus did, but because of Jesus, they would have gone, what changed in this man? Not only is he going to return the money and more, but there's going to be a relationship where he, he owns what he did. That's a big shift that would have been, been very noticeable. You know, the only way that you can return that much, because obviously he was a greedy man to begin with, right? Absolutely. Take, take all that money in. Imagine the change of heart. That he's not holding tightly to any of it now, is he? He lets loose from it. Uh, I think as as Bill and I were talking and and our elder candidates this week about this, you get the image uh, of a closed fist versus an open hand. And most of us, if we're honest, or many of us, I should say, we walk through life with a closed fist, as Zacchaeus did. And the only time our fist opens up is when we want to reach out and grab something because we want more. And again, culturally, that's what, that's what we're told to do. Reach out and grab whatever you can. That's what Satan told Eve. Look, the fruit is good. Reach out and grab it. We want more money and more things and more opportunity, more experiences, more pleasures. And so we reach out and we grab. And then once we have, we close our fists again. And you can almost see this physical transformation in Zacchaeus when the fist is no longer closed and instead he has an open hand. And he says, if... I've stolen from any of you. Here's the difference. You start to see the change in heart posture. He's returning to who he was made to be. No longer is he closed-fisted, and he's building my kingdom and protecting his own kingdom, but rather he says, now my role is to build the kingdom of God. Jesus is going to reign fully, and none of this is mine anyway, and so his hand is held open, and he says, now I'm going to love. That's a pretty massive transformation. And so I think for each of us, it's important to just ask that question, to be honest. Am I walking through life more with a closed fist, except when I want to grab something? Or is my hand facing up, my palm up, and I'm open-handed yeah. because I recognize what is God's and what is mine? Now, there's another prayer that we have from that book. And the prayer is, may I learn what it means to have enough and abandon the relentless, relentless pursuit of more. It really paints a picture for us of trust. Of may I learn what it means to have enough it's, it kind of represents contentment, doesn't it? And it kind of re- represents that I'm transferring, I guess, my love for whatever I have or anything I want really to God and abandon the rel- relentless pursuit of more. And, and again, I think that comes back to this image. If we're relentlessly pursuing more, we're holding on tightly to what we have. And so what's the difference in our heart posture? So this brings us to our third, our third principle, which is this. You don't have anything. We don't have anything that wasn't given to you. And so we might have a tendency to think to ourselves, well, hold on a second. I worked really hard for what I have. And maybe you did. You probably did. 
But you didn't work hard to breathe the first breath of life that you were given. And you didn't work hard to be born naturally with the gifts that you have. Now maybe you, you worked hard to grow those and to get better at them and to utilize them and to understand how, how to grow and to learn and, and therefore to be able to earn. But at the end of the day, God could snap his finger and that's gone. At the end of the day, or maybe the beginning, he gave you the first breath of life and can take it away at any moment. So if we're actually honest with ourselves, we're not in control and we're not in charge. And nothing that we have is something that we actually have a right to. And so again, as I recognize this and I look back at the fact that I did nothing to be born, I did nothing to be created in the way I was with my own unique skill sets and gifting and, and where I was born in our country and in our nation with opportunity. All of a sudden I go, I don't have a right to hold on tightly with my fist clenched. But rather what's true is to go, this isn't mine anyway. Good verse 8 again, let me read it. But Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, look, I'll give half of my possessions to the poor Lord, and if I've been extorted anything from anybody, I'll pay back them half. There's a transformation there. Sometimes when, sometimes even when we give, we don't think that we're actually giving what God's first given to us to others. Sometimes we, sometimes we kind of do it without thinking, and really it's a form of worship, that we give to God what he first gave to us, that everything that we have, any of our talents, any of our treasures, all belong to God. They all came from Him. And sometimes we can see it in others, but we don't see it in our own lives. And that's Christ residing in us, isn't it? So we no longer cry, mine, mine. But now we, again, as Landon said, we opened our hands and said, it's all yours. Just direct where I should give it. I think that's probably the only way to be generous. I'm going to hold on tightly to what I think I've earned and worked hard for. But if I recognize the only reason I was even able to earn and work hard is because of God, that's going to shift that posture. And that leads us to the, uh, the third prayer I want to, to bring up to hopefully instill and ask God to give us hearts that are generous. Uh, it says this, may I receive every good thing as a gift to be celebrated with thankfulness and shared in generosity. The, the first part matters the most, I think. May I receive every good thing as a gift. And so I'm recognizing that everything that is coming to me that is good is a gift from the Father. James says this, all good gifts are gifts from the Father, the Creator who is perfect and loving. And so may I receive everything. And we talked about this a little bit in Sabbath last week. Uh, this Sabbath day, this 24-hour window of opportunity and blessing is a day to go, what am I thankful for? Because I'm receiving it as a gift. And then when I receive as a gift, I'm going to be open-handed and say, is it a gift to be celebrated? May it be a gift to be celebrated with thankfulness and shared and generosity. Yeah. Our, our next principle, principle four. And I think uh, we probably didn't even think about this one, that Jesus multiplies our generosity, that he takes whatever we do and he multiplies it. And sometimes that doesn't even come to our mind. We don't even think about that. But if we, if we, we think about when Jesus fed the 5,000, and remember he went to the little boy, and what did the little boy have? What did he have? Five loaves and two fish? And he probably, probably thought, well, what's Jesus going to do with this? It's, it's impossible to feed all these people with just, with just this. But Jesus took it and multiplied it. First he looked up the guy and he gave thanks for it. And then he multiplied that he could feed thousands. Not only did he feed thousands, but there was more left over, wasn't there? 
He had the disciples go back with baskets and pick up the bread and the fish, etc. So think in terms sometimes, and even pray sometimes, that Christ working in you would take whatever you do and multiply it. Not for you, but that Christ might be exalted. Really, that's, sometimes that's what we pray for the city. Mm-hmm. That was collaboration, that we, Christ would work through us and spread out into the city, into our families and neighbors and coworkers, et cetera. What, what's interesting about generosity is that our, with our perspective, if we're going to be generous, we think about what it will do in that moment. So with our generosity, what does it do there? And God thinks way beyond that. There's a, an exponential domino effect of our generosity that we see throughout the Scriptures. And I'm going to read what Bill was just talking about. Uh, in John 6, 8 through 13, uh, there's thousands of people. It says 5,000 men, which we could probably more than double that with women and children being a part of this day where Jesus is teaching on this, this grassy hill. And, and one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, says to Jesus, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many, for thousands, 10,000, nothing? Then Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, so they sat down. The men numbered about 5,000. Then Jesus took the loaves, and after giving thanks, even he recognizes as the Son and the relationship with the Trinity that all good gifts come from the Father. And so what does he do? He, He has everybody sit down, and he gives thanks to the Father, and then he distributes the five loaves and the two fish to those who were seated. And they had as much as they wanted. This is really important for us to hear. They had as much as they wanted. And he continues to separate the bread and the loaves and the fish, and they pass it out in baskets for thousands and thousands, so much so that there's food left over. And so you have to wonder, why would Jesus do that? Jesus knows what he's doing. He could have made just the right amount, but there's baskets left over. And I think the only logical conclusion as we read this story in John 9 is that Jesus was making a point, that that we don't live a God who has a scarcity of resources, uh, who gives a scarcity or a scarce amount of opportunities, but rather there's an abundance. When God wants to, when God gives, He gives more than enough. And so that, again, changes our perspective with generosity. Can you imagine this? On this day, there's thousands of people, there's no food to be had, and they probably know that. Then with five loaves and two fish, there's more than enough food. It's not like they just go to the grocery store and get that amount of food. Like, it's hard to plan for 50 or 100 people to make enough, but there's thousands, and they have left over. And Jesus is painting a picture saying, come to me, because my kingdom is full, and it's good, and there's more than enough. And that, that's God's plan for us. You never know. As that, that boy had no clue with five loaves and two fish that they would feed thousands. And you never know what one generous act, let alone a lifestyle and a heart of generosity that's cultivated in us will do. It's not going to stop with one generous act. God multiplies our generosity. It reminds us that, that Jesus is alive and still working. So you think that we meet here today because of what 12 men did 2,000 years ago. Would you have entrusted the gospel to 12 men? No. <laughs> but yet that's, that's where we came from, right? That story, the good news of Jesus Christ, flowed from generation to generation to generation. And even in this church body today, there's two, three, four generations worshiping the Lord together. Absolutely. Generosity. And and this moves us to our our next principle, principle five. Generosity is about more than money. Some of you are probably thinking, oh, let's not talk about money because that's the thing that we're really tight-fisted with. We care about a lot. And so generosity is about money and ourselves and our time 
and our gifting and our skill set and our ability to listen to people. But generosity is about more than money. We were talking about the story of right. the Good it's Samaritan that, yeah. that kind of paints that picture. It's, it's amazing how the God gives us uh, the stories that, trans, that transpire, that remind us of these things. So remember the Good Samaritan, the lawyer asked Jesus, who's my neighbor? And Jesus didn't directly answer him. He gave him another story, right, which Jesus usually does. He said, well, uh, you know, there's a, there's a priest in the Levite. There, well, uh, there, there's a man that's beaten up. He's robbed. He's laying by the side of the road, hurt. There's a priest that bypasses him, a Levite that bypasses him, but a Samaritan who's separated from everybody, walks over, bandages the man up, puts him on his donkey, takes him to an inn, uh, tells the storekeeper or the innkeeper that take care of this man, give him anything that he needs, and when I come back, I'll reimburse you for that. Right? And we start learning that this generosity is our, is our time, our talent, and our treasure. It isn't just about money. It isn't just about treasure. You know? It's funny, when Landon told me about this, I started laughing because I can remember before I was a Christian, I have two other siblings and my parents needed help. And I said, my sister, I said, you're responsible for it to give her the time. Give them the time, the nurturing, you know. My brother is kind of a, is kind of a technical person, so I said, you're responsible for fixing things, you know. And I'll send the check. I thought, and now I think about it as a Christian, or after I became a Christian, I thought, I can give them all these things. You know? I mean, really, our time, talent, treasure is to see our neighbor and to really meet their greatest need, whatever that might be. If it's our time, if it's our nurturing, we give them that. If it's our treasure, we give them that. If it's our talent, our gift, we give them that. Whatever meets their need, because that's what Christ does in our lives, right? We receive that mercy and grace every day. And we recognize that none of those three, the time, the talent, or the treasure are things yeah. that we weren't given. We were given all of them. Right. And so again, that changes yeah. that, that posture to having an open hand. This leads us to our, our final principle, principle six. Throughout human history, God consistently blesses generosity. And so here's where our discussion gets a little bit interesting because there's going to be some of you that are going to have these red flags going up and, and think we're going to be talking about a, a prosperity gospel where if you give enough, then you get your boat and whatever else you want. And the Bible simply does not say that. I wish it did sometimes because I like boats. Those are cool. But it's not what it says. However, throughout the scriptures, Old Testament, New Testament, Old Covenant, New Covenant, the scriptures clearly show this, that God promises, and his promises are always made good, to bless those who are generous. That could be monetarily. It could be with material things. It might not be, though. We don't know. But what we do know is he says he is going to honor and to bless that. And so as Bill and I were discussing this and, and really the picture of streams, we're saying generosity is a stream worthy of diving into because as we do, it's going to just force you to ask some hard questions. And so maybe of all the streams, this might be the one you don't want to jump into those waters uh, because it's costly. It's maybe the most tangible cost for us, whether that's our, our money, our time, our treasure, our talent. It costs to give because we're not using it for, for ourselves. But God makes promises in the scriptures. One, he says, this is who you were made you were made to be generous, so to not is going to go against what I made you for, and there's consequences of that eventually. But two, he promises to bless generosity of all kinds. And so as I think of the stream of generosity, I think of really the width of this stream, meaning that from the beginning, first two pages of this book that we call God's Word to the end, 
God continues to talk about it. It's a wide stream that he brings up again and again. And he says, this is who I am. I'm a gracious or a generous God, and you are to be like me. And so as we come to a close um, on our time this morning, what I want to do is, is Bill and I are going to take turns alternating, reading uh, a series uh, of passages to give you or to show you, to paint a picture of the, the width of this stream and the promises that God makes consistently throughout. And I'd encourage you just to soak it in. Now, oftentimes we refer to this as God's word, and so I'd encourage you to go, is it? Do we, do we actually believe what God says? And if we don't believe this part, which parts do we believe and why? Or do we have to say, no, this is God's word, and we're going to accept what he says? Oftentimes we love to accept Jesus as Christ, meaning our Savior, but we struggle to accept Jesus as Lord. And here's the thing, we can't separate. He is Christ and Lord. Jesus is Christ and Lord. He's our Savior and our King, and He actually knows what's best for us better than we do. He knows what you need more than you know what you need because He actually loves you more than you even love yourself, which we often say is a whole lot if we're honest about it. And so let's go ahead and just, just listen, soak it in to see what God says. And if we actually believe Jesus when He says it's more blessed to give than to receive, I'll read the first one. If anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, but closes his eyes to his need, how can God's love reside in him? Carry one another's burdens. In this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. Don't neglect to do good and to share, for God is pleased with such sacrifices. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. For the measure you use will be measured back to you. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Make money bags for yourselves that won't grow old. An inexhaustible treasure in heaven where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. Kindness to the poor is a loan to the Lord, and he will give a reward to the lender. The one who shuts his ears to the cry of the poor will himself also call out and not be answered. A generous person will be blessed, for he shares his food with the poor. The one who gives to the poor will not be in need, but one who turns his eyes away will receive many curses. Good will come to a man who lives generously and conducts his business fairly. He distributes freely to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn will be exalted in honor. In every way, I've shown you that by laboring like this, it's necessary to help the weak and to keep in mind the words of the Lord Jesus. For he said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Bring the full tenth into the storehouses so that there may be food in my house. Test me in this way, says the Lord of hosts. See if I will not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out a blessing for you without measure. And whoever gives just a cup of cold water to one of these little ones, because he's a disciple, I assure you, he will never lose his reward. One person gives freely, yet gains more. Another withholds what is right. Here's the, the image of a closed fist versus an open hand. Only to become poor. A generous person will be enriched, and the one who gives a drink of water will receive water. Instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God, who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, willing to share, 
storing up for themselves a good foundation for the age to come so that they might take hold of the life that is real. Lastly, you will be enriched in every way for all generosity, which produces thanksgiving to God through us. So you kind of get to see the scope. Like, if this is God's, God's word, he's pretty clear uh, on what he says about, about generosity. And so I, wanna, I just want to close our time with this. You could hear this and, and start to think there's this guilt trip going on to give. Except I want to go back to to two things. First of all, Jesus' words. He says it is more blessed to give than to receive. And so actually what Jesus is painting a picture of is that giving is going to be a blessing. It's not about necessarily what we're doing. He might multiply that. He says he will. He's going to use it. But really, this is about you. It's actually a gift to the heart. Because here's the reality. If we're honest, it gets exhausting walking through life closing your fist and clenching and worrying about all the stuff and the things that you either don't have and want or the stuff that you want and you're trying to protect. Uh, Ecclesiastes talks about this. But there's a whole different way of life with easier breathing when we go, you know what, nothing I have is even mine. And so I'm going to open my hand up and say, God, what I do have is yours anyway, and so I don't know how to use it best, but give me wisdom and give me a heart of generosity because that's who you made me to be anyway. And so then we go and we look at Zacchaeus. He was saved. He experienced salvation and transformation. Why? Not because he gave the right amount, and so there was this transaction. He gave, and then he received, and salvation happened. No, the sequence there matters. He uh, received Jesus. He was accepted by Jesus when he looks down and says, Zacchaeus, come down from that tree, and I need to stay at your house. There's this relationship built, and Zacchaeus receives Jesus as Christ and Lord in that moment. And then the fruit of that salvation, the fruit of diving into this stream, with Jesus is that he's generous. He experiences his love. It's not because he was generous, salvation came, but because salvation came, his whole understanding was, was, was switched. No longer is it this, but now we're generous. So may we, as a church, even when it's hard, can we trust Jesus' words? And may we be a generous people. Yes, with our finances. Yes, to the church. Yes, to our family. Yes, to our friends. Yes, to our, our neighbors, and yes, to our enemies. And may it be with our, our finances, with our time, and ability to listen to people and actually hear and care. May it be with our, our talents, our treasures, our gifts and abilities and our skill sets. May we say, God, all of who I am, nothing of this is mine. It's all yours, and so I lay it before you. And I'm excited to see if we do that the ways that God uses this church. And, and kind of like that boy with five loaves and two fish, we have no idea the beauty that will abound because our God is a God of abundance. And what one thing you do, what one gift, let alone a lifestyle of generosity, will have an impact and be a signpost of Jesus' coming kingdom in Prescott. Let's pray. Father, you are good. You are the giver of all that is good, of life, of our breath, of our gifts and abilities, of our time, uh, of our relationships, of everything. And so, God, may you give us awareness of that. God, as we... Uh, acknowledge that we often walk through life with a closed fist and a closed heart, crying out, mine, mine, mine. May you shift that. May you give us eyes to see that nothing we have is ours except, except what has been given by you. Work on our hearts, God. Help us to be who you've made us to be. We love you, and we look to you in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we now continue our worship. Uh, by responding to God. We first heard through him, through, through his word, through the music, and now we respond to him. And part of our tradition here at Restoration is first and foremost is to reflect. And we have a lot to reflect on this morning, a lot to give thankful for. 
God's generosity, God working in our lives, God directing us, thanking God for the gifts that he's given to us, how he might use those through us or how he already has used those through us. Secondly, in, 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 the, in our giving, we return to God what he's first given to us. So there's, there's two boxes at the rear or there's a little brochure on the back of the chair in front of you that if you'd like to give online, you can do that. And the last three, three communion. And I, I remember a few years ago that Peggy and I were able to go to Israel. We went through Caesarea Philippi. And before this little stream, uh, Christ gathered his disciples to him. And he said, who do the people say that I am? And the disciples responded, some say Elijah, some say John the Baptist, some say Jeremiah. But then he asked him this important question, which sometimes I ask myself, but who do you say that I am? And who do you say Christ is determines everything that you do, everything that you believe. So as you go to communion today, consider that. Who do you say Christ is? Is he just a good teacher? Is he just your savior? Is just a therapeutic Jesus that I go to in need? Or is he the Lord of your life? Let's go to prayer now.